0: Good morning. It's good to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about the prophecies of Hosea. I get pretty excited sometimes when we get to study the Old Testament. And in fact, our fellowship group, as you may recall, my wife and I lead a bunch of young marrieds. We took a little time at the, this past spring to really look at the minor prophets. And they're only minor because the writings are shorter, as compared to maybe some of the longer ones like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, so out of that we usually take the summer off, and we usually take one couple over the summer through a more of an in-depth Bible study, and we had chosen Hosea to go through. Quite frankly, it just made it a little bit of an easier of a lesson today because we're already studied up. We already know what's going on in Hosea. Um, tomorrow we actually meet. I think we go through chapter thirteen and fourteen. So if you're that young couple, reminder we have a study tomorrow night. But it's exciting because you can see in Hosea God's faithfulness. In the title of this message, I said, hope in the midst of judgment, because you're going to see that throughout the book of Hosea. We're just going to hit a small part of Hosea this morning, chapter one, and a little bit in chapter three. Through Hosea, you're going to see this judgment, but hope coupled together and through this prophecy. And it's an amazing book, I encourage you, and the hope is that as you leave here this morning, I want to entice you to continue to read this prophet. Most of us are familiar with the story of of Hosea. He's commanded by God to marry a woman of harlotry. And the woman that Hosea loved played the harlot. Based on the reading of chapter 3 this morning, God commands Hosea to go again, love Gomer. And so Hosea goes and bought his bride back, and he lived with her, and 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 she with him. Things were bad for Gomer. She had to be purchased. This is a real-life illustration for Hosea, so that he can proclaim the word of the Lord to Israel of what is to come. The story represents the relationship between God and Israel. So, as my custom is, is that when I teach an Old Testament passage, I try to give a pretty good historical background. As some of you may know, Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And if you can remember, after Solomon, and you can see the, the line of the judges through the united kingdom of King Saul, and then King David, and then King David's son Solomon. Solomon did not end his life well, honoring the Lord, and so his kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, there were some good kings and there were bad kings. But it was through this kingdom, through this lineage of Judah, through King David, that the Davidic covenant was promised and will be fulfilled. And you can see that all the way through the the Bible and fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah— as the permanent king on David's throne. Now, the kings in the north, they were all bad. Every single one of them. And it started with Jeroboam. He really cherished his kingship more than honoring God. And how does he do that? What he did was he put an idol in the north, in the northern kingdom, in the north of Dan, and he also put an idol in Bethel. For the northern kingdom, the people of northern kingdom of Israel to worship because he was concerned that those in the north would go south and worship in Jerusalem as they were supposed to, as God commanded. And he was worried that they would rebel against him and he would not hold in his kingship. All the kings after him never repented of this sin. All of them were bad. All of them honored themselves over God. Just to give you a little bit more of a geographic context, as I love maps, you all know this hopefully about me by now, but I love putting a map up and getting a little bit of a visual context of where the land is. And in the north, you can see the far circle, I will admit that the map is a little bit dimmer than the ones I've used in the past. past. Israel is in the north and Judah is in the south, Just again, just to give you a little bit of a geographic context here. To understand Hosea, one must really understand the covenantal relationship between Israel and the Lord through the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was established in Exodus 19, 5 through 6. And it says, Now then, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Essentially, obedience to this covenant, following the law of God, following all the ceremonial ordinances, and all the aspects of this covenant would equal blessings upon blessing, and they would remain in the land that God had given them. Disobedience to this covenant, would equal curse upon curse and removal from the land that God had given them. So what were some of the curses? The second half of Deuteronomy chapter 28, you don't have to turn there, but just pencil it down because it's a fascinating read. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, you see blessings, but then in the latter half, which is a significant portion of the chapter 28, you see curses. And I have to admit, these curses are hard to read because they are so severe. And this would happen because Israel did not fear the Lord and did not follow the commandments. And they played the harlot and pursued other gods. So Deuteronomy chapter 28, just as a little bit of a flavor what those curses are, uh, verse 25, and I'll read this. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. And you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Chapter 28, verse 35. You shall become a horror, a proverb, a taunt among all the peoples where the Lord drives you. Verse 64 of chapter 28 again. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you and your forefathers have not known. And these are just the PG versions of these curses. There's other curses associated with disease, calamity, and famines. It's also important to note, and you see it on the slide up there, that in Exodus, as recorded, Israel entered into this covenant by saying, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Israel entered into this bilateral covenant. If you will do these things, then I will do these things. They were bound by this covenant. So this is the backdrop for Hosea's prophecy. Hosea is now proclaiming that the judgment and the associated curses are now upon Israel. He was to expose the nation's breach of the covenant and to announce God's intention to enact these curses of the covenant. Like Hosea's wife, Israel played the harlot and did not know the Lord. So the question is, what happens now? Why is this happening now, this judgment, this finality? and Because they have a history. Israel always had a history of pursuing other gods and playing the harlot. God is patient and long-suffering. He is full of love and kindness, and we'll see that as we continue our study. You see this, though, in the book of Judges. I love the book of Judges. It's a great read. As Israel would do evil in the sight of the Lord, and he would allow temporary occupying forces as judgment to take over. But Israel would cry out to the Lord, and they would groan, and God would hear them, and there'd be a repentance, and God would rise up a judge, and that judge would go up against the occupying force and take them out under God's direction, and in some cases, Um, God doing the work. There was repentance and a turning back to God, though temporarily. He is patient, allowing this slow burn of unfaithfulness. But in Israel's case, once that judge died, immediately they went back to idolatry. Immediately they went back and did not know the Lord. But Hosea now is proclaiming an absolute judgment upon Israel. There is no repentance. The best to equate this, and if you all know me, I have an older brother. He's significantly older, about 12 years older than I am. And when he was in his young, wilder days, he got in trouble with the law. And when he got in trouble with the law, he went to jail. And my father, who loves his son, loves him very much, went and bailed him out of jail and pulled him out because he loves his son. He could not stand to see him in jail. Well, my brother, he went and he actually messed up again. And he went and the charges were more severe. And he was arrested and he was put into jail again. And my father tells me this story because I was pretty young at the time. I don't think I remember any of this that was going on. I'm kind of glad I didn't at the time. But my father has told me that as a father, it was the hardest thing he's ever done. Imagine that. Your own son being put in jail and you're electing not to bail him out, you're electing him to have him remain and to stay there. And the purpose of my brother would feel the full, uh, the full absolute judgment of the law. And Israel, in the same way, is going to feel that same judgment. And God, in the same way, similarly, the analogy breaks down eventually, but God loves Israel and he's going to judge them for their actions and their unfaithfulness. So that this is a prophecy that you'll see several themes based on my own estimation here in my own study. You're going to see unfaithfulness described. These are indictments against Israel. Again, as you read the book of Hosea, they are unfaithful to the Lord. They're unfaithful to the covenant. This makes up the majority of the book. You're also going to see the certainty of judgment because of their unfaithfulness. And as we have been talking about, there are proclamations of the curses that will take place. This is, again, a result of Israel's unfaithfulness. You're also going to see a glimpse of a call to repentance. If you study Hosea, you will see this small few times that Hosea chimes in and calls Israel back to repentance, almost knowing that they wouldn't repent because of the proclamation. But again, that call is another indictment against Israel. You'll see that in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And you'll also see that in chapter 14, 1 through 3. You can write that down for study later. And then the the other majority of this prophecy, you're going to see an ultimate restoration. A hope towards salvation. This is where you'll see the depth of the Lord's loving kindness and his faithfulness towards his covenants and towards his people. Despite the fact that we are unfaithful, he is going to be loyal to his people. It was, this is not my own, but I thought this was helpful when you study the prophets. A teacher was, explained this to me. I've heard it explained this way, and I thought it was good to go over here. When you're looking at the prophets, there will be periods of overlay. And what does that mean? Sometimes the prophets in their writings will call into mind God's past promises. Then the prophets will look at Israel's present sin. Then Israel will look to future judgments in that prophecy. Then many times they'll look at a distant act of mercy by God towards Israel. And then they will also at times look at that final glory when Israel is completely reconciled in the last days. And we can say amen because we know that's the Messiah that's doing the reconciliation. It is Jesus. So the teacher goes on to say, as you move through these prophecies, you're going to move between past, present, future, distant future, and final, moving very smoothly in the text. And as he described, it would be like the gears turning very smoothly. You don't hear them turn but you're seeing the prophet's move through these periods in the text. I just thought that was very helpful to me because it makes a lot of sense when you when you see who God is. He's eternal. He's outside of time. He sees the real from beginning to end and all in the middle. So it makes sense through these prophecies. You're going to see all those aspects because that's how God sees it. He's outside of time. We see it sequentially but God sees the whole picture. Isn't that amazing to really think about? As you read the prophecies, to see that God sees the whole thing and we have the privilege to read that in these prophecies? That's what gets me excited about reading the Old Testament because it still points to a Messiah. It still points to the Christ, this Jesus. So that that is a long intro to Hosea, it's a lot of background, but it's helpful, I believe, to really to get into the, into the depths of what this prophecy really teaches. So who is Hosea? Surprisingly, this book only records a little bit about Hosea, mainly in chapter 1 and again in chapter 3, and that's mainly through what God commands him to do as this imagery of this relationship between God and Israel. Our natural tendency is to focus on that part of Hosea. But in reality, there's 11 more chapters after chapter 3 beyond this illustrative relationship between Hosea and Gomer that are so valuable. And remember, that's the goal. To look at this this service is to look and understand that Hosea is a very rich read to drive and push and encourage you all to read this book. So let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, king of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, if you're careful and look, you'll see two kingdoms being mentioned here. You see the kingdom of Judah and their kings, and you also see the kingdom of Israel and their kings. The Jeroboam mentioned here is actually Jeroboam II. He is the great-grandson of Jehu, which you will read about shortly. Okay, just keep that in mind. You'll also see the kings of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah mentioned. And there's a lot of writing to maybe um, understand why those mentioned. Maybe it's a nod to the fact that the southern kingdom is is the ones who were following God and the northern kingdom was not. Or it could just simply be shown that this revelation to Hosea crossed more than just one single revelation. It was over a lifetime. It was over a long time that these writings came about. And that makes sense as well. So continuing on to verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Take, go, take for yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Now, The word harlotry, and I'm using the New American Standard Bible with how they render that word, but the ESV also uses the word whoredom, which many of you use. That word will be repeated several times within the book of Hosea. In fact, it's used some 21 times. This is a strong word, and it really hits home at the issue at hand. The word harlotry is adultery. The imagery is meant to be strong as it represents the breaking of a bond between a husband and wife, one being the prostitute and soiling the covenant relationship in the marriage. Israel has played the harlot. They have committed adultery through idolatry. So immediately again, you see that this relationship of Hosea and Gomer is representational of the relationship between Israel and the Lord, looking at the second half of this verse 2. So he took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, as his wife. This is a marriage that may have started out fine, but turned out bad very quickly as she took off to play the harlot. You can see the parallels between God and Israel. Things are bad in Israel. Things are bad on the home front. Israel no longer knows God, and she in in this imagery or this relationship, this representational relationship, Gomer conceived and she conceived 3 children which will be illustrative in the next passages. 3 children that will proclaim A judgment upon Israel. Let's move on to verse four. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu. There's that name I mentioned earlier. For the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. In short, Jezreel means to sow. In this context, it points directly towards scattering. Now a quick look to the past. Who is Jehu? You could also pronounce that Yehu, but for the sake of not laughing every time I say it, I'm going to say Jehu. It sounds like something I would say on the farm. Yehu, you know. So who is Jehu and what happened at Jezreel? Now Jehu was a northern kingdom military commander appointed by Elisha. Elisha was a prophet of God to take out the house of Ahab Now, King Ahab was a bad king in in Israel. And he worshipped Baal. And he was all into it. And he was killed. Not by Jehu's hands, but by other means. But the house of Ahab was still there. So Elisha appointed Jehu through God's direction for Jehu to go out and take out the house of Ahab. You could kind of equate this to the the cleanup guy. If you want to put it in terms of a mafia. A contract killer, in a way. He killed the house of Ahab in the valley of Jezreel. He did what was appointed by God to do. Now, God commended him for this. So you're asking your question, why is this considered a bad thing? Well, God commended uh, commended Jehu for doing this, because not only did that, he took out the priests who were Baal worshipers. He took out Baal worshipers. He was really doing what God intended him to do. But... He took it a little too far. He also killed a king of Judah, and he also killed a family of that king, the family members of that king as well. That's where that went too far. And you have to ask yourself, what was going on in Jehu? He was doing these things that was good for the Lord. And actually, the Lord commended him so much for, the, for what he appointed him to do that the Lord said, you know what? I'm, four generations of your line has continued to be the king of Israel And that's where we see Jeroboam II in the opening of this paragraph. There's still one more king to come out of his line. But God said that would end in this Hosea passage, as is also Israel will come to an end as well. Now, Jehu was like all the other kings that I mentioned, even the first Jeroboam. He desired his kingship more than honoring God. And all those kings never repented of this idol worship. And they continued on valuing what they desired over what God desired. So don't look, when you think of Jezreel in this context, don't think of it as a place of good. But this is a place that is a reminder of where Jehu's role began and, is, and it's not a good reference as he was no different than these other kings. But God is about to end it He didn't forget, Israel will be scattered and overtaken. This was a look back, a reminder of sorts. Now we're going to look to the near future. Look at verse 5. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So the Lord would break Israel's military strength, symbolized by that archer's bow here in that text. And it actually, because we have the benefit of the historical record, the biblical record, we can see this in 2 Kings chapter 15, that an Assyrian king came up to to Galath-Pelesar III. That he came and fulfilled that when he invaded and defeated Israel in that very valley. little poetic justice in some ways. This is a judgment that will scatter Israel, and they are defeated militarily. So, Gomer conceived another child, a daughter, lo Rehuma, as the Nazbi puts it in the Hebrew. The ESV says, No mercy, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. The name of Rehuma is more in line of a parent having love for a child, but this is not Hosea's child. This was a child that was a result of Gomer's adulterous acts. The Lord commanded this name, to illustrate his relationship with Israel at that time. I would never forgive them. Israel's continual unfaithfulness made it possible that the Lord could no longer have compassion. Go on to verse 7. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the, the Lord their God. I will not save them by the bow or by the sword or by the war or by horses or by horsemen. So he would have compassion in Judah in contrast to Israel. And they would not be delivered by their own might, but by the Lord's alone. This prophecy will happen, and this is a near future, and it also could be a nod towards the keeping, keeping of the Davidic covenant. Now we see the, the benefit of having this, you know, our Bible because we can see the historic account, and we can see this in 2 Kings chapter 19. This is after the northern kingdom is wiped out. Assyria is coming down, and they have sieged up against Jerusalem. There's an army of 185,000 plus, and they've gathered. And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, had prayed to the Lord that Judah would be delivered from the hands of the adversary. That, and this is the purpose, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. The Assyrians were struck down by the angel of the Lord in the night, which effectively ended that campaign against Judah. God is faithful. He is loving kindness, full of loving kindness. Even to Judah, who would later on walk the same path of Israel and then be sent into exile. But notice Hezekiah and how he worded his heart towards the Lord. Don't see that in Israel. But you said, see that in Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Moving on to verses 8 and 9. When she had weaned Lohrehumah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, him lo-ami, for you are not my people, I am not your God. Lo-ami, not my people, and I am not your God. This is a very strong statement. It was through this child's name that Hosea prophesied that God would no longer have this special saving relationship with Israel. They were essentially cut off. So for the purpose of these three names, I've also highlighted on the screen, um, courtesy of Dr. Constable, um, the summary of those three names, the meaning of those three names, and the purpose. So Jezreel, God plants, in this context, scatters, and God would scatter his people. La Ruhuma. No compassion. God would no longer show compassion by rescuing Israel from destruction. Loami, not my people. God would sever his relationship because of Israel's disobedience. So this will happen because they violated the Mosaic covenant. They could not keep it. They were unrepentant. They played the harlot. They looked like the other nations and worshipped idols rather than the living God. So for a little bit more of a picture of what that looks like. On the slide, I've given you several reference verses, but I will go through some of these. So in the nation of Israel, that northern kingdom, there was no knowledge of the Lord. Turn to, if you don't mind turning to me, with me, to chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. And I'll probably, after this one, go pretty quickly. You might not have time to turn. But chapter 4, verses 1 In 2, and then we'll read verse 6. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. Because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. And if you scroll down to verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I will also reject you being my priest since you have forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your children. Can we do that? Can we forget God? Can we not know him? Yes, we can. We certainly can. There was also a corruption of leadership And I will just read this, chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, the leadership. For the judgment applies to you, for you have been a snare at mitzvah and a net spread out at Tiber. Those are imageries to show that the leadership were a snare to the the, the northern kingdom, they were also causing this nation to stumble. They were not knowing God. They were forgetting him. They were worshiping idols as well. Can we have corrupt leaders? Yes, we can. Certainly. Let's look at chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. Ephraim, again, this is a word that's used quite pri- frequently, Fairly often to reference Israel. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God. Nor have they sought him for all of this. So Ephraim Has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt, they call to Assyria. So in the time of need, they're looking to the nations for help. They're looking to those outside bodies for assistance. They did not repent and they did not seek the Lord. Can we do that? As believers in Christ, can we depend on man rather than God, trusting in the man's devices rather than trusting God in his word? And the answer is certainly we can. Israel were also cheats and they were dishonest. Looking at chapter 12, verses 7 through 8. A merchant in whose hands are false balances. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, "Surely I have come. I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. And all my labors, they will find me. No, in, in, no iniquity, which would be sin. They were using false balances. They were cheating to get their wealth. And they proclaim so much that their wealth has increased." that, oh, I must not be in sin because my wealth is increased, and they failed to understand that that wealth was achieved through dishonest means. They gained, but they did it dishonestly. They rejected God. Can we be dishonest? Yes, we certainly can. And accordingly, God did not love them. He had no compassion for them. The consequences of this, of this unfaithfulness this adulterous behavior, this idolatry. You know, as an aside, when you look at these passages of Hosea, and one of my mentors brought this up as a point in their own study of Hosea, he goes, isn't it interesting that the Lord uses marriage as the imagery to represent his relationship with Israel? We also see marriage also used to represent the relationship between Jesus and his church. Then we have our own marriages. I need to put effort into my marriage. I cannot phone it in. I cannot ignore my marriage and expect it to go well. I need to spend time with my wife. I need to enjoy being with her, to get to know her, to love her. I need to constantly die to self and hold her in high esteem, and lead her in a loving way. Do you get the picture? One of the reasons Israel played the harlot is they did not know the Lord. They did not regard him, and the result was a broken relationship. And you would think, even as you get older, I've been married 22 years, and for some of you, that's still a short time. Some of you have been married a lot longer. And you think as you get older, this is going to get easier. But I need to be aware constantly that I am always two steps from falling into sin. Two steps from doing something horrible that would wreck my marriage. It's humbling, but I'm keenly aware that my relationship with my wife is directly influenced by my relationship with, which, relationship with Christ. I need to rejoice and our Messiah, I need to rejoice in Jesus because that's enough. I need to be content in him because that's enough. In a way that's putting a hedge, a protection around my marriage as I strive to be more like Christ and I fall in love with him. My expectations will not be met in marriage. My wife's expectations will not be met in marriage at times. That's when sin creeps in. But our expectations of the Lord will be met because he is faithful And he loves you. And he's full of love and kindness. So leading up this first few verses, this is the proclamation of the judgment as illustrated through these names of these children. Now we're going to look at verse 10. And there's going to be an obvious change of tone here. I'm going to read verses 10 and 11 together. Yet the number of sons yet the number of the sons of Israel would be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered and in the place where it is said to them you are not my people it will be said to them you are the sons of the living god and the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel there's that name again Jezreel In summary, you'll see several things when you read these passages. You're going to see a reference to Israel being a great nation again. They will be restored again to be the sons of the living God. And that kingdom of Israel will also be reunited. Remember, they were a divided kingdom. But the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel will be reunited. And they will be reunited under one leader. And I bet you can guess who that is. Jesus, they will take root into the land, and they will be coming up from the land, and they will be full of blessings, and that's where that word Jezreel comes in, because God will sow, and that will be a blessing upon blessings that will occur in the last days. If you are a regular student of the Bible, verse 10, the beginning of verse 10, should be sending flags up like crazy, This language is part of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. You don't need to turn there. I want to read it. Where the Lord promises to Abram, later called Abraham. He makes promises. He says, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the ones who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families, the nations of the worth will be blessed. You see, this is a unilateral covenant. This is a promise to Abram of land, seed, and that seed will be a blessing to all the nations. This was solely on God. God did not have to do a thing. In fact, God cut a covenant with Abraham on that day. So, all of these promises were on God. Abraham did not have to do a thing. This was a unilateral covenant opposed to the Mosaic covenant, which is a bilateral covenant. So despite the pending demise of the northern kingdom, in that generation, the Lord is faithful to, to this unilateral covenant. made clear back in Genesis. Israel would once again, in the far future, experience the benefits of relationship with a living God as they reoccupy the promised land someday. It's interesting, immediately after those judgments, you see the word yet. It's almost kind of equivalent to the but God. He interjected. he he, He put his hope in the midst of that judgment. It's interesting that also in these verses, you see a nod towards other unilateral covenants that are referencing from the Abrahamic covenant. You see this here. The Abrahamic covenant is further elaborated through these other covenants listed in the slide. Going by order the way that they appear in the verse, the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, quote, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You can see here in this particular text in the end of uh, verse 10, It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. This is a nod towards the new covenant. You also see a nod towards the Palestinian covenant. In Deuteronomy 30, an excerpt from that, the Lord your God will bring you into a land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he shall prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. This would be aligned with when the sons of Jude and the sons of Israel will be reunited together. They come into the land, and God will bless them, and bless them upon blessing. And then you continue on, and you see the Davidic covenant. Again, this is the promise of seed. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. I'll just read an excerpt. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. You see this nod to this Davidic covenant. When they say they will appoint for themselves one leader, this Messiah. These covenants are solely on God to keep. These covenants have to be kept. And these are the covenants that you will see God being faithful through to all through Hosea. This generation will be destroyed because of their unfaithfulness and unbelief and violation of the Mosaic covenant. But God cannot help but to keep his covenant with Israel due to his loving kindness. This is the hope. This is the hope part of the prophecy. As the Mosaic covenant points us to the need of a Messiah, the unilateral covenants points us to the Messiah being the completion of these covenants. You can see the Lord, the love for Israel all through Hosea as well and his excitement to keep these loving covenants, to keep these covenants through his loving kindness. And you can see that in chapter 11, verse 8. You can see the emotion of God come out. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me, and all my compassion is kindled. Even in Hosea and Gomer, the Hosea Gomer relationship, you see restoration. Look at chapter 3. Hosea knows and understands what this restoration looks like as he went to buy his wife and bring her home to live with him. Look at verse 5. This is the representation. Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return. Let me start over. Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. There again, you see that nod to the Davidic covenant. If you look at verse 2, or excuse me, at chapter 2, verse 1, which Really belongs with verse 11 above, but again, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Say to your brothers, Ami, not lo Ami, Ami, my people. And say to your sisters, Ruhami, not lo Ruhami, no mercy, but has mercy. This is important. The the Israel in the future has this relationship with God. You can see it there in that verse 1 of chapter 2. This is a look into the final future of that prophecy. This will come to pass. Why? Because he is faithful and, and God does what he says he will do. What he says will happen will happen. Now, as you do your own study, there are tons of applications that you can come up with as you go through this, to apply to your own life as a believer in Christ. I know in my own studies, even with that young couple, we're all the time talking through applications. What does this mean? What does this mean? For us, let me leave you with a couple. Number one here, in studying a Hosea, this really leaves no question. You can actually look the part on the outside and still be rotten on the inside. As you read Hosea, you will see how the Israel played the harlot, and they insulted God even more by mixing worship of God with Baal. So, a little bit of God and a lot of Baal. They kept things and the ceremonies on the outside, but in their heart, they were not legit. Now God delights in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, as Hosea 6.6 states And in fact, in the New Testament, Jesus actually refers to this verse twice. But he also referred to the Pharisees in the New Testament as whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, but having dead bodies on the inside. We need to heed the prophecy to Israel. Do you all ever know, maybe you've experienced this, I know I have, and and in some ways I'm guilty of this, but have you ever walked into somebody's house And on the walls and on the cabinets, there's Bible verses. I'm guilty of this. I have this in my own house. If you're in that person's home for any kind of time, especially if you stay with them for a while, you're going to know real quick if they abide by those verses or it's just for show. I hope that's not the case in my house. (laughs) But you can portray a spiritual outside but yet you can be far from God. Is that true? Can you put a spiritual outside, come to church, put your shirt and tie on, and look good, but be rotten on the inside? And the answer is, yes, you can. You can't fake this. Do you think God was fooled by Israel? He certainly was not. So why would God be fooled by a fake relationship? He's not. You know, my wife told me the other day, and I've been learning this because I'm going to say in her earlier days when she worked um, at a retail, say, sale, uh, retail store, again, I, earlier days, I didn't say younger days because I'm learning. <clears throat> but she, she used to work at a place called Lecter's. I don't know if anybody's heard of that place. I wasn't. It's more of a upper Midwest, I think in California even as well. Uh, but this was like the Bed Bath and Beyond of the 90s. Anyway, people there at that time in the 90s, people would actually write, still write checks. We don't do that much anymore. I do write a few occasionally, but not as many as I used to. But a lot of times people would write these checks. And on the checks there would be this Bible verse, you know. And she could almost predict it every time. That as those patrons would hand over that check, she would see that those patrons were the most rude, the most obstinate and unforgiving towards the employees of that store. It's not funny, but it does tell a story. You can't fake this. The heart will reveal what it is. God knows your heart. He knows you, what you believe. You can't hide that. He knows if you are his or not. These are the folks that fake the relationship are Christians by name only. Now reverse that. Number two, reverse that. Can you as a believer in Christ get tangled up in the culture? Let the culture define who you are. Let the culture inform your decisions. And we play the harlot, looking more like the world. Can we do that? Yes, absolutely we can. He knows your heart. He knows you. So we need to take the time to spend with him to get to know him more intimately. So that when we are making decisions or making choices, we're making them in light of his character and through the lens of his word. That was Israel's downfall. They did not know the Lord. Heed the warning of Israel as they started to look like the nations. Heed the warning of Hosea as they started to look at those around them that entered in and did did not go well. You know, in Jeremiah, Israel was actually deemed more righteous than Judah. So the northern kingdom of Israel was actually deemed more righteous than the kingdom of Judah. Why do you think that is? Knowing that Israel was exiled first, and then Judah came later? If you put the two together, it makes sense. The reason Judah, Israel, was deemed more righteous is because Judah saw what happened in the northern kingdom, but yet they still played the harlot. And we have that example here. So why do we want to hang on to this world as believers in Christ? Why would we want to play the harlot ourselves? It will not go well. Number three, just as God can take a train wreck of a nation like Israel and turn it upside down and bring them into restoration under a Messiah, can God take a train wreck of your life and turn it upside down and use it for his glory. Certainly, yes. And many of us here know that because we know who we were once before, before Christ, and we know who we are now as a child of God. That's the beauty of Hosea's prophecies. They point to a Messiah, and that very Messiah is available to you today if you don't know him. No matter your past or how far you think you are from God, this Messiah is available to you. By just putting your trust in Jesus to do what you could not do for yourself. You cannot rescue yourself, just like Israel cannot rescue themselves. You cannot. And Jesus died, and he paid that penalty, that price for your sin. He was the propitiation for your sins. A satisfaction of God's wrath, God's judgment. And he died, and he was resurrected on the third day. And all we need to do is put our faith and trust in him. If you have not done that, please talk to me. Please talk to the leaders of this church. Please talk to those who you know attend here. Please do that. Time is of the essence. Jesus is coming back. That is the clear picture in Hosea as you see these prophecies. In the last day, this Messiah will come and praise God for that. Come all the quicker. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and you are just in your wrath towards sin. And I am thankful, God, that as a believer in your son, Jesus, that I'm inoculated against that wrath. You are gracious to us. Praise you for who you are in that and praise you for your faithfulness. And despite even as we see judgment in this book of Hosea, we see hope. I pray that those who do not know you see that hope this morning and come and search you out. And His word says, when you are sought out, you will let them find you. And I pray that that is the case. And I pray this because it is in line in the character of Jesus Christ. Amen.